This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. So, welcome everybody. Welcome to, I think, the last Lannan conversation of 2018, the final one before the midterm event. Um, one of the topics we're going to have on our plate for discussion today is money. If you have any in your pocket at this point, it is obvious you are just not reading your email. Uh, we like our electorate penniless and panicked. Um, no, honestly, one of, the, one of the things I've learned from our speaker this evening is that money is a lot like our president. It sucks up a lot of airtime, but it has no intrinsic value. And in fact, seriously, there is really nobody I can think of who has taught more people more about things like money and value and relationships and power than our speaker tonight. In his brief 83 years, David Harvey has really helped a lot of us think through some very complex questions. But it does have to be said that his career path was not altogether obvious. Um, If you look back 50 years ago, he was a humble geographer in Baltimore studying maps with his geographer's jacket or something. Um, And the relevance of his musings about Marx uh, was not altogether clear at that moment. If, If you think about it, much of the world, in much of the world, social democrats felt that they had kind of wrestled into submission the worst of extreme capitalism. And even here in the United States, there were some people in some places that had access to things like quality-free education, healthcare, libraries, public media, and so forth. Fast forward 50 years, all that's gone, (laughs) Uh, pretty much. Uh, Capitalism is untrammeled, and David Harvey is a rock star, which kind of makes you wonder who was it that advocated deregulating the banks? Um, I do a TV and radio show. It's called The Laura Flanders Show. We say it's the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. And every week we do a story about people who are or projects that are shifting power from the few to the many uh, in the worlds of arts, politics, and economics. And, and I can't tell you how often David Harvey's name comes up, whether it's Belfast or Bolivia or Brazil or, or most recently for me, um, Hungary. I was in Budapest. Uh, David Harvey is indeed a rock star. He is not just a thinker, uh, a theorist, but he's someone who takes to heart Marx's idea that our task is to analyze the world, but also to change it. Um, In Budapest, sure. In in Budapest, (laughs) David. In Budapest, um, I was on the search a few years ago, as I often am, for effective resistance to the rise of fascism. And I found a fantastic group, by far the best organized grassroots organization on the street, which was an organization of homeless people. They really had it together, they knew what they were doing, and they were absolutely not giving an interview to the media. Um, And in circumstances like that, I know that what I really have to do is to pull up on my iPhone one of my interviews with David Harvey, and and all doors open. Uh, And that's exactly what happened. So David, I, I thank you for that. And I can assure you that you are in for a treat. I, I asked David what he wanted to talk about tonight in a nutshell, and he said, capitalism and why I'm against it. And, uh, 
I said I thought that would go over a treat. So with his, his classic mix of um, apocalypse with little morsels of possibility, David Harvey. <laughs> You're doing a great job. (laughs) Capitalism and why we're all against it. Yeah, I I did want to spend tonight talking about why I'm an anti capitalist and uh, hope to persuade all of you that you should be anti capitalist too. I'm sometimes sort of asked, well, why aren't you saying you're a socialist or a Marxist or something like that? And I think in some ways, if you take that path, you get too targeted into certain things and you don't look at other things. One of the amazing things about living in a capitalist society is you can't move anywhere and do anything which doesn't somehow or other find yourself coming up against something or other that has something to do with capital. And therefore, I wanted to be in a position to be able to sort of knock it on the head wherever I saw it. So the position of anti-capitalist is being a bit like (laughs) anti-mosquitoes. You thwack them wherever you see them. (laughs) And at some point or other, you say to yourself, wouldn't the world be a better place if there were no mosquitoes and no capitalists? (laughs) And capitalists do the same thing to you as actually mosquitoes do. They sort of sting you and, you know, make life miserable for you, and uh, they sometimes kill you. So I think the analogy is kind of useful just as a starting point. But I'm an anti-capitalist not, not because um, I have some sort of defect in my DNA which people usually ascribe to me because they kind of said basically I was born insane or something of that kind. I'm not anti-capitalist because uh, I came from a sort of uh, some background which prescribed that. I'm really anti-capitalist because It seems to me it's the only rational position to have, given the analysis I have of what's going on around us in the world right now. And that therefore, what we have to do is to recognize that we're facing some very, very, very serious conflicts and potential conflicts. And the only resolution to them is to get rid of the process that is actually at the root of, the con- uh, of, the, of, the, of these uh, conflicts, which is the accumulation of capital and the persistent growth of the accumulation of capital. Now, a few years ago, I wrote a book about the contradictions of capital, and I ended up with three contradictions, which were, I thought, uh, the main contradictions which were threatening to the system uh, as a whole. Uh, The first was the requirement of perpetual growth. The second was the real problem of keeping capitalism moving in the face of environmental issues and environmental concerns. And the third was something called universal alienation. And I'm mainly going to talk about the first two. And in in doing so, I want to make clear that capitalists are not necessarily evil people. Some of them are, some of them are not. Some of them really believe that what they're doing is helpful and what they're doing is good for humanity and 
uh, of, and sometimes proclaim that very loudly from the rafters, like uh, uh, Bill Gates and, and, and the like. So they're not necessarily evil people, but they are locked into a system. And it is my study of that system over the last 30 or 40 years that has led me to my current conclusions about what the system is doing. Capitalists don't freely choose. They've built a system which, in a sense, is running them. And they have to behave in a way uh, that actually obeys what Marx called the laws of motion of this system, the laws of motion of capital. And those laws of motion are hard to understand in detail, but there is a fairly simple way to look at it. And it is that the capitalist system is based on the idea that you start the day with a certain amount of money. You use that money to buy labor and means of production. You take that labor and means of production and you use a technology and you put it into the production of a new commodity. The new commodity is then sold for money. And that money has to be more money than you started out with. That is, it has to be a profit or what Marx called surplus value. That money is then distributed in various ways to various groups. Some of it goes to labor, some of it goes to industrialists, some of it goes to merchants, some of it goes to interest and all the rest of it. But then at the end of the day also, the capitalists are faced with what they're going to do with the extra money that they've got. Now, if they were normal people like you and I, they would go and spend it and have a good time. Unfortunately, as Marx pointed out, this is their Faustian dilemma, because that is indeed what they want to do, but they can't do that because they're actually forced to reinvest, because they're in competition. And Marx talks often about the coercive laws of competition, the coercive laws that force you to do certain things whether you like it or not. And so the capitalist is forced then to take part of that extra money and then put it to making even more money. So the system is about perpetual accumulation. And it cannot exist and continue to exist without that perpetual accumulation. And perpetual and endless accumulation is, if you like, at the core of the system that was built in the late 18th century and became secure by the mid-19th century. And this was the system that Marx clearly analyzed. And I think he did it in a very, very interesting way. And I think today it is still very relevant to look at how he analyzed it. In fact, in a curious way, it's more relevant now than it's ever been before, for one very simple reason. That when Marx was writing, capital really dominated the world in only certain corners. It was dominant in Britain, it was dominant in Western Europe, and dominant in the eastern seaboard of the United States. But it wasn't dominant anywhere else. Yes, there was merchant capital going around, but merchant capital it doesn't follow the logic that I've just outlined. It's industrial capital. So the industrial capitalist system is the one that is constantly expanding. And it's been expanding at the rate of according to the data which has been carefully analyzed by some economic historians, it's been expanding at the rate of 2.25% per year since around 1780 onwards. Now, actually, when you go to the press, you'll find that people start to sort of feel fairly comfortable when they say the growth rate is, you know, 3% or above. 
And 3% is fine. So let's think about a 3% rate of growth. But this is a compounding rate of growth. It's 3% on the 3% on the 3%. And the compounding rate is, has very interesting properties. I always kind of like to sort of say this to students, so I'll say it to you too. The simplest example is the famous story of the person who invented chess and was asked what it was he would like as a reward by some Indian king. And he said, I want a grain of rice on the first square and then double it for every square. And the king said, fine, no problem. And of course, one grain goes on the first square, you get two grains on the second, then you get four, then you get eight, then you get 16, and then you get 32, and then you get, you know, on you go. By the time you get about halfway through the board, you've actually exhausted pretty much all the grains of rice in the world. And the king suddenly realized that this compounding is a real problem. But in Marx's time, it was not a problem because the world was open. They were, as it were, on the first row of squares. And the big question for us is, where are we now on that chessboard? What line are we in? And are we approaching the point where we're actually beginning to exhaust everything? And just think about this for the moment, that actually in 2007, just before the crisis, the global economy was assessed to be worth about you know, $55 trillion. It's now worth $80 trillion, even after the crash. That's what we're talking about here, and that means that in another you know, 20 years, we've been looking at a global economy of $160 trillion. And then we'll be looking, sort of 10, 15 years after that, at $320 trillion. Well, the big question is, what is that money going to be worth? What are you going to do with it all? What are the investment opportunities for $320 trillion? One of the arguments I make, and there's a lot of evidence for it, is that capitalists have had harder and harder time identifying profitable outlets for the surpluses that they're producing. And that we have a perpetual problem of surplus capital not knowing what to do. Now, in the 1960s, there was still plenty of place to go and plenty of things to do. And actually, economy grew in a very real sense. But from the 1970s onwards, what we began to see was surpluses that nobody knew quite what to do with. So instead of making things, they started to buy up things. They started to speculate on asset values. They started, in a sense, not to go and make something and to create value, but they started to actually invest in the extraction of value. And this actually started to create a kind of an economy which was very vulnerable to crises. Before, say, 1970s or so, there were not that many financial crises. There was, of course, the big crisis of the 1930s. But, you know, we came out of that after World War II and had a pretty, capital had a pretty good run at things at that time. But from the 1970s onwards, we've been in a situation where there have been lots of little mini-crises all over the place. And if you looked at the stock market today, you would say, oh, yeah, here we go again. And it's also become, you know, part of our daily lives that, you know, there's going to be volatility, there's going to be a crash. When does it come? There's actually a very good picture 
of Trump's economy today, which was just look at what's happened to the Dow since January the 1st. You remember when Trump was saying, it's going great, it's going great, it's going great, it's going great. Today, it went back down to below where it was on January the 1st. That's the Trump economy. He's not bragging about it anymore, by the way. He says, this has nothing to do with me, you know. When it was always going up, he's saying, you know, we've made the economy, it's the best economy in the world, it's never done anything else. But this is not anything to do with Trump. It has everything to do with the logic of the system and how the system is working. Now, this continual expansion of the economy, how is it done and what is the logic of it and what kinds of things can we look for in it? Now, this, in this point, I would kind of say, look, there's some interesting examples. After 1945, the United States had a very serious problem. It had surplus productive capacity. It had created far, a huge surplus productive capacity during World War II. What was it going to do with that surplus productive capacity? It was in danger of going back into the conditions of the 1930s. It could not possibly do that. If it did that, look at the situation. It would say to all of the people returning from the war, you went to fight for freedom and you've come back and you're going to get, get depression. That would have been unacceptable. You had a mass of the population who'd gone off and fought the war for a better life. And if they didn't have a better life, there would have been difficulties. There would have been socialism. There would be uh, all kinds of things. And the other problem, of course, for the United States was that there had been an alliance with the Soviet Union. So after World War II then, there was a political problem, there was an economic problem. And the political problem was solved in a classic way, which is repress the left. Set in motion anti-communism, McCarthyism, and all the rest of it. But there was the economic problem. How were they going to revive the economy? And what kinds of things were they going to do? There were, in effect, three particular things which were crucial to the survival of global capitalism after 1945. And that was within the United States itself, which at that point was the largest global economy. And it was the one where growth had to be assured. And there were two, if you like, three things which were significant. The first was the arms race. That is the military-industrial complex and all of that, that you could take the surpluses which were existing there and the surplus productive capacity and you could set in motion a cold war and an arms race and all of that kind of thing and that would absorb a lot of the surplus capacity. And there's a kind of endless quality to military expenditures. There's always a better weapon system. There's always something better. There's always something that is absolutely critical because the Russians, the Soviets have caught up or are going, you know, and that, that in its story was, is a story which many people think about and know. The second was a, a much, I think, more significant story, and it was uh, simply suburbanization. That is the creation of a new structure of urban life. Which, in which the suburbs became a, a living space in which many of those people who'd fought in World War II 
could look to come back to to have a reasonable family life. This was an ideological thing as well because the suburban living and the support of a suburban way of life became a wonderful way to absorb all of the surpluses to actually deal with the potential discontents of the population, to create, if you like, a public and a population which was very much in favour of the continuation of a capitalist system. Actually, suburbanisation was a social project as well as an economic project. And it was a form of ensuring social stability. And suburbanization depended upon home ownership. And home ownership was one of those things which is also about social stability. Home ownership for a significant sector of the working class. At the time, it was recognized. Debt-encumbered homeowners don't go on strike. They're not going to be a revolutionary class. They're not going to rise up against the system. No, they've got their suburbs, they've got a way of life. And, of course, they need all of those commodities. They need automobiles. The automobiles need power, they need energy. You need rubber, you need, you know, I mean, the whole thing. I mean, there was a very interesting kind of comment made in the San San Francisco Federal Reserve where somebody said, you know, the United States typically has gotten out of crises by building houses and filling them with things. And that was what suburbanization did. But in order to suburbanize it, you need something else. You needed a population that had an income stream that could pay the mortgage and could pay for the way of life. So in fact, there emerged a privileged working class, largely white working class, which became the backbone of, if you like, conservative thinking and conservative uh, politics. But they needed, if you like, a strong economic basis, which meant there was going to be strong support for the unions. So you had the auto workers union and all the others. And so there was a politics in which the world was stabilized in a certain kind of way. Now, in some ways, of course, we're still paying the price of that suburban solution to the perpetual accumulation of capital. Because it was profligate in relationship to energy consumption. It was profligate in the use of land. And to some degree, the environmental problems we face today were a consequence of that solution being pursued again and again and again, further and further and further. And we still have the difficulty of saying, when we talk about the environment, what are we going to do about the automobile? How are we going to actually do anything about the environment without transforming either the automobile itself or the kind of society that depends upon the automobile? So that, those three things became absolutely critical. So what I'm saying here is that In 1945, what kind of choices do the United States have in terms of absorbing the constant accumulation of capital except by the increasing suburbanization of the United States? 
and the creation of a way of life that went with it. And this actually says something about the nature of capital accumulation and why I'm an anti-capitalist rather than just simply a socialist. Because what capital has to do in order to facilitate all of that is it has to change the way in which people think about the world. It has to change wants, needs and desires. It has to manipulate and somehow or other make the suburb an object of desire. And it not only has to do that, but it has to transform environments, physical environments, so that the physical environment of the United States undergoes a radical transformation. I mean, this is what Robert Moses did. This is what the, internet, what the interstate highway system did. All of this. And it was an immense accumulation of capital through suburbanization, which entailed an environmental transformation a transformation of the landscape in which people lived, a transformation of the sense of relation to nature and what nature was about, and also a transformation of social relations among people, but also a transformation of cultural forms. That's what I mean about, this is this mosquito form of capital. You don't like this particular cultural aspect and you kind of say, look, I've got a battle about this, but then suddenly you find yourself battling the power that created that and be, lies behind it, which is the circulation and accumulation of capital. Now, I use that example. And actually, there's some very interesting historical examples that are similar. I often refer to the transformation that occurred in Second Empire Paris between 1852 and 1871. Louis Bonaparte came to power. There had been a huge crisis in 1848. He declared himself emperor in 1852. He knew perfectly well if he had unemployed labor and unemployed capital uh, around for very long, he wouldn't be emperor for very long. So what did he do? He brought Haussmann and he said, transform Paris. So the transformation of Paris, and you go look at Paris right now, that was done all in the 18, 1850s, 1860s, and it was all about full employment, circulating capital, rebuilding the system. But this system back then also required all sorts of reforms in culture. And of course, it's fascinating to recreate how Louis Bonaparte created new ways of life, new ways of living, new wants, needs, and desires in Second Empire Paris. Now, not everybody goes along with this. And of course, there's a revolt against it. And not everybody is incorporated in this. So that the grand suburbanization scheme in the United States ran into the fact that there were large numbers of people who were not incorporated in it, particularly, of course, African-American populations and the marginalized populations, immigrants and, and the like. So you start to suddenly see there's a revolt against it. The first wave feminists said they were revolting against the place with no name, which is a suburban lifestyle, because it was predicated on a certain allocation of gender roles. And they saw that very clearly. And they said the suburban lifestyle is not conducive to women's liberation. So that you start to see that this process creates a certain form of opposition at the same time as it's pushing things. And pushing things. And that opposition then at a certain point 
because it cannot incorporate everybody, and not everybody wants in any case to be incorporated in that system, produces uh, the oppositions that, that we then led into the various urban crises of the 1960s when inner cities revolted, uh, you get the Detroit uprising, you get the LA up- uprising, you get the uh, uprisings which occurred in almost every city in the United States uh, after the assassination of Martin Luther King, and you get this sort of huge kind of problem of urban inequalities and, 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 and all the rest of it. Now I'm looking at all of this back then because I want you to understand that this process didn't stop with urbanization because the accumulation of capital is continuing apace. And I want to switch right now to say what happened in 2007, 2008. Actually, during the years before that, you know, a lot of what was going on in the United States was about building houses and, and actually trading houses and filling them with things. So that actually you get a switch from building to kind of, you know, investing in urbanization. And 2007, 2008 was a crisis that originated in the housing system in this country. And, you know, and particularly in certain parts of this country, mainly Florida, Georgia, and of course the American Southwest. And there were problems elsewhere too, but in, some, in, a, in a way they were manageable. The big unmanageable ones were in the, that area. And at that point, you suddenly see that the capacity of the system to su- sustain itself by heavy indebtedness on populations which had no means to pay off that debt. Yet here you have a major crisis which flows into, of course, the financial institutions and suddenly the financial institutions are in crises and all of those people who've trusted the financial institutions like municipalities in Norway that have invested in collateralized debt obligations find they have no money. It's all disappeared. And then the debt starts to actually turn from banking debt into sovereign debt and we get the sovereign debt crises like Greece and all the rest of it and so on. So, you know, the crisis unfolds in a certain kind of way. How was that crisis stabilized? What happened? How was it done? I don't know what story you have in your mind about it, but here you have a massive downturn of the economy, a crash, and it had to be stabilized. And at that point, the system had to find some way for that stabilization to occur. And that stabilization mainly took the form of trying to intervene and create actually more money, more liquidity, to actually sop up all of the surpluses that were already there, which is creating money to absorb money, which is a very insane system when you think of it. But in effect, that's what began to happen. But in particular, what happened immediately afterwards was there was a conference of the G20. Now, it's interesting that it was no longer a conference of the G7 or the G6 or the G8 or something like that. It was the G20. And Bush brought them all together and said, look, we've got this global crisis. We've got to do something together and get it going again. 
And actually, for the first time in many, many, many years, and for the last time, it turns out, for many, many years, everybody agreed that something had to be done. And they said, we've got to go off and do it. And so the United States did this Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, in which they were supposed to bail out all of the financial institutions. That was the idea. It was a bad idea because as soon as you put yourself in the position of bailing out the financial institutions and not bailing out the people, you're going to get yourself in a situation of a great deal of resentment on the part of the people. And particularly, if this was what was being called uh, uh, around then the, the sort of neoliberal solution, then the public legitimacy of the neoliberal solution started to come into question. At the time, I wrote a piece about why the TARP was bound to fail. And it was bound to fail for one very simple reason. It was not big enough. And when you looked at what needed to be done, there was nothing big enough in anything that was done in the United States to save the situation. What was it that stabilized the whole situation in 2007-2008? Well, I'll cut to the chase. Since 2007-2008, up until just a couple of years ago, more than 30% of the growth in the world economy has been attributable to just one source, China. China saved global capitalism from going back into the 1930s. Forget the Federal Reserve, forget everything else. They did a little bit here and there, places here and there, but it was basically China. China did it big time. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to see how everybody in the United States is down on China now, and they want to suppress China. You say, hey, you should be thanking China. They actually stabilized global capitalism. How did they do it? Well, it was a bit like what happened in the United States after 1945, building superhighways and suburbs and all this kind of thing, except it was on steroids. The Chinese were already growing at the rate of 10 12% before the crash. In the crash, the export sector of, the, of China fell uh, off a cliff. About 12% of China's GDP in 2007 was located in the export industries. Within two years, that had come down to 4% of GDP. That was a huge, huge hit. A lot of unemployment. China had the unemployed capital, unemployed labor. What on earth was it going to do with it? Well, it had to do something, so it actually accelerated its building program. The sort of thing it did was to say, oh, we have some shovel-ready projects of the sort that Obama dreamed of having but never got. We have some shovel-ready projects. For example, we have this high-speed train network which we've been planning. In 2008, China had zero miles of high-speed rail network. It now has close to 20,000 miles of high-speed rail network. And it's built it in 10 years. Well, that takes a lot of resources to do that. It accelerated urbanization. It started building cities, even though there was nobody there yet to, be, to, to move in. 
It was a huge, huge building thing. Now, one of the things that I'd looked at and found fascinating, and this is the point where I want to make it very clear, that between about 2009 and 2011, something like that, China accelerated its consumption of cement. And I have a graph of the consumption of cement, which just goes through the roof to the point where in two years, China consumed 45% more cement than the United States consumed in 100 years. Now, you've lived in the United States, and you know there's a hell of a lot of cement consumed around here. Imagine that... That's what the Chinese did. And it continued. And it's very interesting. The graph of cement does not pause at 2007 and 2008, which you would expect would happen in a crisis. It accelerates. It doubled in 2007, 2008. So it was urbanization and infrastructure investment, like the high-speed rail network. It was all of that that the Chinese did. And of course, the Chinese in doing this required vast resources to do it. So actually, those countries which were supplying China with raw materials came out of the crisis of 2007-2008 rather fast. Most of Latin America came out fairly fast. Those places that had mineral resources, Chile, copper, Brazil, iron ore, and the like, and you suddenly see that China is, is consuming half of the world's cement, half of the world's steel, half of the world's copper. Now this is a huge, huge economic expansion program. It is of the order of what happened in the United States through suburbanization between 1945 and, say, uh, 1968, it's about that, but you squeeze it into two years. This is what I mean about the expanding scale of the solution to crises through urbanization. And China has produced and continues to produce a great deal of this sort. And in order to do this, there's a revolution in China in terms of modes of consumption and all of the things that I talked about in terms of suburbanization, and you see it going on the ground. The formation of a hyper-consumerist middle class in China. The automobilization of the country. I mean, China specialized in, of course, creating traffic jams and all the rest of it. Now, this was the solution. And it was the solution that kept everything in, on, on, as it were, from absolutely falling apart. Now, it's not as if capitalists are going to thank China for doing this. And it's not as if China did this because it wanted to save global capitalism. And the Communist Party did it because it knew, like Louis Bonaparte knew, like the powers that be knew in United States after 1945, that if it could not take the surplus labor and the surplus capital and put it to work doing something and making something, then it would actually lose legitimacy, lose power, face 
mayhem in the streets and that is not what the Communist Party wanted and that was not what it was going to tolerate. Therefore, what it did was actually end up with decentralizing this whole process. It turned to every municipality, it turned to every regional government and said, build whatever projects you want. And they have a very interesting kind of system within China, which is actually run by the Communist Party, of course, and this is a party of 90 million members, by the way. And, and what, what it works like is this, that mayors of cities are appointed. They're not elected, they're appointed. And they're appointed for maybe three or four years. And during those three or four years, they have a spreadsheet in front of them. How much do you raise your local GDP as the top line? What projects have you completed in three or four years? And there's a thing down the bottom which is interesting. How much social harmony have you maintained over the period? There's a whole sort of spreadsheet of this kind. So any mayor coming in says, if, I want to, if I'm ambitious and I want to go somewhere in the party, what do I do? I go out there and I build like crazy all over the place. So when you, when, when, when you go to China, you get these insane urbanization projects. I teach there sometime, and I teach in Nanjing, and the first time, in, time I'm in Nanjing, they said, you know, we've, we're very discontent with the center of Nanjing, and we're going we're to build a new center. I say, okay, that sounds a good idea. Next year I come back, and uh, all the ground is cleared. This year I'm back there, and the whole damn thing is built. And you kind of go, this, I mean, the speed of this. But look at what this means in terms of resources. Global resources. Consumption of copper globally has doubled since 2007, 2008 because of this solution. The global consumption of basic minerals, and of course many other minerals, has doubled. China's economic development has doubled. Began to have difficulties because like all of these projects, and this happened in Paris back in 1867, 68, it ran into crisis. It happened in the United States with the urban crisis and then the crisis of New York City in 1975. But all of these projects of absorbing things through urbanization hit a barrier. China is close to that barrier right now. And the big question is, what's going to take it up and how is it going to be extended? Because global accumulation right now is in a lot of trouble. It has mainly survived by monetization. Because when you talk about infinite accumulation, compounding growth, when you talk about that, you say, what kind of capital can compound without limit? Well, Marx points out in capital that the only form of capital that can grow without limit is money. So what we've done is we've actually responded to the crisis by something called quantitative easing, which is adding zeros to the money supply. Oh, we need more, oh, yes, create more liquidity. Put more liquidity in there. And this is creating more liquidity, whereas if you go back and you look at all the reports of the International Monetary Fund, you know, in 2007, 2008, and that kind of thing, they say, the problem right now is there's a surplus of liquidity. 
So you go from the fact that there's a surplus of liquidity that's the nature of the problem, which leads to a solution, which is to create more liquidity. So that's the kind of insane system that we are getting into. And we're getting insane forms of urbanization as a result. And those insane forms of urbanization, just go and look around you, and you see them all over the place. We're building cities now for people to invest in, not building cities for people to live in. There's a huge building boom in, United, in, in, in New York, for example. A huge building boom. All those pencil towers going up all over the place. Who's going to live in them? The answer is nobody cares. We have a crisis of affordable housing. The, the, those folk aren't going to live in them. Half the population of New York City is trying to get by on less than $40,000 a year. Where the hell are they going to live? I mean, in one of those pencil buildings? I mean, we do occasionally have fantasies about, you know, squatting one. <laughs> but it's pretty hard to imagine getting in there and staying there very long. And this is, this is interesting, you see, because all of those buildings there came out of the Bloomberg administration. Bloomberg is a big environmentalist. But actually, when you think of it, this was about a building spree that had absolutely nothing to do with environmental sustainability. It had everything to do with the sustainability of capitalism. And actually, this is where accumulation without cease, endless accumulation, and compounding growth forever, and the environmental problem crash head on. And you then say to yourself, you know, Bloomberg is very much about solving the environmental problem. And yes, there are a lot of ideas out there. Corporations, are, yeah, they can actually do some good things, you know, which is fine that they come up with new technologies and so on. And I think it's very important they do that. But at a certain point, you've got to go to the root of the difficulty, which is endless accumulation. That is the root. Bloomberg is a very good example of exactly that contradiction. You don't have to worry about that contradiction with the Koch brothers. They're just simply against any kind of environmental politics whatsoever. So capital is in this situation where it's facing us with the dilemma. Either this system gets sustained which means that you have to actually recognize that we are going to wreck the environment, we are going to further, uh, you know, further fall into inequality, we're going to deepen the cultural, environmental, and other aspects of our lives to the point where we have to submit to a way of life which will be intolerable. And the Chinese themselves are facing this with the fact that air quality in the Chinese city right now is a major cause of death. That we have actually the conversion of a system which is a capitalist system which for the first time is no longer actually achieving any kind of increase in life expectancy. 
David Cameron was the first prime minister in Britain for many, many years in which life expectancy at the end of his tenure was lower than it was at the beginning. We find in many areas of the United States life expectancy is falling. Life expectancy in China, which rose very strongly, has actually hit a barrier. And those are the sorts of issues which are facing us right now. So there is a a collision, if you like, between this endless growth. How are we going to actually have endless growth now the China model is not able to sustain global capitalism anymore? And there's a recognition by big capital, and we're beginning to see it, that where on earth do they go? And as we try to get out of this insane way of monetizing our way out of a monetary crisis, as we try to get out of that, then what we start to see very starkly is that this system is close to its limits. And that the limits are there and we have to actually then start to think about alternative ways of living, alternative things to do. And those are, I think, alternatives are the things that are actually beginning to emerge because many people are finding conditions of daily life in urban settings intolerable. And it is, I think, no accident that if you ask Over the last 15, 20 years, there have been quite a few major social uprisings around the world over various things in various places, various times. All of them different. But one theme that puts them all together is that they're nearly always about, no longer about conditions of employment. They're about conditions of daily life. And that daily life has become intolerable. And that therefore we want to create a new mode of production and a new way of living and a new mode of urbanization. Right now, we have this insane form of urbanization in which we're building building after building after building for the affluent and the rich. And Bloomberg had the imagination that he would love New York to be a city where every billionaire in the world had a penthouse. Now, is that the kind of city you want to live in? And, by the way, they only come there once a year, if they come there at all. And then they, they demand everything to be exactly the way they want it. So, these are the world, world in which we have arrived. This is where we've arrived. But we've arrived at this world for a reason. And the reason is that systemically we are locked into the endless accumulation of capital, compounding rate of growth, and an increasing monetization of that. And I haven't gotten around to your question too much about the nature of money under these kinds of circumstances. And that is where we're at. And I think that it's at this point, therefore, that we start to have to think about alternatives, and that's where I want to get into a conversation with you. Our morsels of optimism. All right, David Harvey. That concludes the reading for this event. Up next is the conversation. So you, you, left us, you left us on a little bit of a cliffhanger about which square of the chessboard we're on. But before I get you to answer that, 
I want you to just knock out of the park some of the canards you hear around capitalism that you've touched on, but just to underscore them, because they're the ones we come across as we try to have these conversations. One is that there's an alternative way of looking at this China story. And the alternative way is looking at it and say, well, look what they're doing. They're raising uh, life expectancy. They're reducing rural poverty. Um, they're increasing gainful employment, more women into work, et cetera, et cetera. You've touched on that, but just to elaborate... Why is that not true? No, well, a lot of that is true. I think that the, the, the achievements of uh, the Chinese in terms of uh, increasing life expectancy, all of those kinds of things, have been very, very strong. And, and, and I think that, uh, therefore, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying they shouldn't have done what they, what, they, what they did. I mean, that's the whole capitalism is a force for good argument. Yeah, well, there is, there is a... I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on Marx's side on this, that there's a, there's a progressive aspect to what capitalism is about, and it creates these progressive possibilities. The trouble is that it rests upon a certain structure of class relations which lead it into these contradictions which it cannot then get past without becoming more and more repressive. I mean, interestingly, uh, you think about uh, the, the sort of history of neoliberalism, which is another sort of topic in a way, but it's connected to this. When the neoliberal logic came in, many people agreed that, yeah, we want more individual liberty and freedom and everything, and we agree with more flexibility and all of these kinds of things that were being pushed around. And, and entrepreneurialism in itself sounds a good idea, and we're going to, you know, building our own human capital is a good idea and all this kind of thing. And, and everybody was kind of going, yeah, okay. So there was a, actually a broad consensus of agreement to that, and, 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 and it therefore had, a, a, you know, Margaret. Thatcher had a lot of legitimacy, as indeed did Ronald Reagan, and and that carried it forward. By the time you get to Clinton and all the rest of it, you're saying there's a different story going on here. I mean, he comes in saying we're going to have universal health care, and what does he give us? He gives us NAFTA, and he gives us uh, the reform of welfare, he gives us... Uh, uh, the reform of the housing stuff, which led into the subprime crisis. The, Telecommunications the, the, law. Yeah, it gives us uh, the criminal justice stuff, and he gives us the, the uh, deregulation of Glass-Steagall. He gives us all this kind of stuff, and people say, what's going on here? I thought we were going to, you know, something was going to come good for us. Uh, by the time you get to 2007, 2008, it becomes pretty clear that actually, you know, this neoliberal thing is a scam. And, and actually, since then, it, it, it cannot legitimize itself except by cozying up to neo-fascist yeah. kind of politics, which actually goes back to some of its origins with Pinochet. And it's interesting, the election on Sunday in Brazil, Brazil. Bolsonaro is going to sort of, is he, he wants to be a Pinochet. And, and his main economic advisor is, well, guess what, a Chicago economist his program is almost exactly what the Chicago boys did down in Chile in 1975. You know, I mean, this is, this is, this is the authoritarian neo-fascist version of neoliberalism. And by the way, uh, the German right-wing AFD party has adopted neoliberalism as its uh, economic uh, program. So, yeah, no, I mean, when you run out, mm -hmm. when the thing runs out, so there's a, there's a moment of, of liberatory possibility, which is explored and is very creative and, and, and that, which then runs up against this other thing, and we're right into that 
cul-de-sac right now. And then there are people that say, well, we're in a post-capitalist period, mm. and we're going, you said, you know, there's a difference between industrial capital and other kinds yeah. of capital. Yeah. Um, there are people that say now we're in an economy of knowledge and, and data mining and, and alternative yeah. currencies. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, there's always, you know, the, the system is always, is always changing. And there are, you know, the, the divisions of labor and so on are shifting and the power centers within the capitalist class are shifting. But what I object to is the idea that we're post-capitalist, which would say, oh, the capitalist class has disappeared. What? <laughs> you know, you say, let's look at the Koch brothers just to start with. Let's just take the Koch brothers and Michael Bloomberg, you know, all right? You know, we're past them, <laughs> we're not. And, 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 and I, think those, I think there's a lot of techno-utopian kind of thinking out there that kind of says the technology changes the world. Yeah, well, uh, technology is always important, but there's no technology that capital cannot appropriate. And look at the liberatory stuff that was there about the internet and when it first was going on and how democratic it was going to be. And look what it's evolved into with everything controlled now by about, you know and internet neutrality about to disappear. And... Well, it brings you to a corporation like Amazon, yeah. which I'd love you to talk about, because I think there you have a new phenomenon, in a way, of an industry, a global corporation, that is both producing and distributing and creating our needs, wants, and desires. Yes. Um, because being in the media, I feel like media is a critical piece of right, this. Right. And, of course, Jeff Bezos owns um, the Washington Post. So you watch him, you watch the Washington Post report on the acquisition of Whole Foods and the technology that they're going to be implementing um, in a paper owned. Like this is, a, is this yeah. a closed system? And how do we get out of it as long as we like the convenience of ordering something I, I, I want you to get us out of the closed system. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, no, it... it no, look, there, there are always contradictions within the system. And I think we have to actually start to analyze and, uh, yeah. and mine some of those, those, those contradictions. And I think it is, uh, you know, again, you think of these corporations as somehow or other having a liberatory message, and then you find out about the labor conditions in, in Amazon warehouses and so on. And you start to see that actually what's going on here is a new configuration, not only of the capitalist class, but also of the working class. And it's that reconfiguration of, of working populations, which, which I think right now is beginning to interest me a lot because they're beginning to see what's going on and the conditions of life, which is supposed to be you know, the new economy and, and all of the beauties that go with it. And then they sit in an Amazon warehouse and just shoving yeah. books around, low pay, almost meaningless labor, uh, oppressive conditions of uh, uh, social relations. And, and, and so, yeah, the system cannot survive without all of that. Although, again, what is interesting is when Amazon wants a new, uh, to set up a new place, it goes to all, all, all of the cities and says to them, uh, Give us a good deal. What's, who's, so it's, it's like, it's amazing. Big capital can't survive right now without actually public subsidy yeah. all of the time. So it's getting public subsidy all of the time. And so capital in the, in the, in the traditional sense is, 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 is actually not in very good condition. 
So the last square of the giant of the chessboard? Oh, you never get to the last square, thank you. I mean, it's not. No, we're not anywhere near there. All right. No. no so we I can mean, rest assured we've got a few squares to go. Well, no. I think in terms of the <laughs> in terms of the, the, the possibilities. No, I, th- I I think that. I mean, the, 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 you know, just to go back to, I mean, the Chinese cement case yeah. just blew me away when I saw that data. And you kind of go, uh, if this is what it takes to keep capital going, to reproduce capital through a crisis of the sort that occurred in 2007, 2008, which is a financial crisis, if that's the only way that the system could get out of it. And that's why I think it's important to recognize the role of China in getting out of the crisis. If that's the only way, then you look and you sort of kind of say, what the hell's going to happen when the next crisis occurs? And the next crisis is likely to be not very far off. But this time we're talking not about an economy which is 55 trillion, we're talking about an economy which is going to be 80 trillion, 100 trillion. What are we going to do? And what does that mean in terms of you know, glo- global resource mining and extraction? And there's a lot of evidence right now that actually capitalists themselves are, are not so much interested in producing things anymore, but extracting value. Yeah. Uh, you know, all this stuff of, 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 of taking over uh, pharmaceutical companies and, 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 and uh, patents of pharmaceutical uh, drugs, uh, t- taking over patents of drugs, and then you know the famous case of the guy who took over some small company which had a pill which was being sold for seven dollars and then remarketed it. I don't know, seven hundred and fifty dollars yeah. or something like that. Pharmaceuticals are doing that all the time. Uh, the actual value of those pills is kind of pretty low. Uh, the, 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 the monetary value is now, is now at another level. So we've got, we've got a, 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 this comes back a little bit to your monetary kind of thing. The, the relationship between money and real value has gone completely off the charts. And we're now working with a purely monetized economy and a monetized structure of value and a theory of value which basically says value is whatever the money is. Mm-hmm. So this is, the, this, is the, this is one of the dilemmas uh, that exists right now. And, and, and you have these tactics like quantitative easing and increasing... Uh, what about these... new forms of currency? Bitcoin, timeshare, oh, all that stuff? Well, that's like you know, paying, playing tiddlywinks with, you know, in the corners. You know. I, I, it doesn't it yeah. do anything. I mean, it, it, I, I mean it, it's, it's important because it's created this idea of a blockchain technology. And the ba- you know, one of the things that I learned about capital, by the way, is there's no such thing as, a, as an interesting or good idea that capital cannot appropriate and use uh, for nefarious purposes. <laughs> the big banks now are using the equivalent of Bitcoin, which is their own blockchain technology, uh, to do all of the clearing between the big banks, which means they don't need the clearing banks anymore. Yeah. So they're actually getting rid of the clearing banks. So the clearing banks are going out of in, uh, mm. business because of this blockchain technology. So the big, the big banks looked at this and kind of, it was a bit of a threat, and then they kind of said, how can we use it in our own, in our own interest? So the consortium now of the big banks who now clear things through blockchain technology, the Bitcoin type, 
But this doesn't do anything yeah. for us and doesn't do anything for you or me, you know. I mean, unless we happen to be good and we picked up a few bitcoins you know, when it was trading at, I don't know, $8 a bitcoin and waited till it was $10,000 a bitcoin. So let's talk about what else is happening. Because I think that you've painted a hugely daunting picture. Yeah. Technology won't save us. Bitcoin won't save us. Capitalism's not over. Um, David Brooks had a great comment yesterday in the New York Times. Everybody see that at the end of his column. His point was, um, these days, culture is more important than economics. Huh. Um, this is the, you know, these are the words coming from our opinion shapers. We should be focusing on culture, not economics. And, and there's a relationship, we'll get to that. But I, I do think that there is something else bubbling. And when you talk about those barriers, I'm seeing them in the reporting that I'm doing. You're seeing them in the reporting, and not just the reporting, but the work that you're doing around the world. Talk a little bit about, about the new formations that are gathering in resistance to some yeah. of this. Uh, we've done a recent piece um, on the show about a little formerly industrial town called Lancashire, I mean, called Preston in Lancashire, England, where um, the city council decided they'd done with begging big corporations to come and start a mall and pave over more of their streets. And instead, they were going to do a little inventory of of how much money were they spending locally and what were they spending it on. And if they spent more locally and hired more locally, um, could they recoup some of that money and, and actually build more of an economy that people had more control over? So there, and that's just one example. They got inspired by people in Cleveland, another industrial town, formerly industrial town. Um, so a focus on place, a focus on participation, a focus on, on democracy uh, is emerging in these little pockets? Yeah. Is, it, is it adding up to something? Well, you, well, you start off with the fact that, 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 that a lot of people around the world are pissed off. Yeah. Okay. I call it not, um, had enoughism. Yeah, yeah, basta. Basta. You know. And, and, and you, you, you get a, a lot of reaction of that kind. And, and some of that anger is, of course, being picked up by Trump and is being picked up by the far right and is the source of, 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 of the neo-fascism, which is which is uh, sort of surging around, around the world. But it's also leading to many of these other experiments with kind of saying, okay, I'm going to try and, we're going to try and find, define what, I would, what I'd like to sort of refer to as heterotopic spaces within the overall ghastly system, where people try to carve out a part of a piece of, of, of living where they can have decent life together and kind of collaborate and help each other and, and, and work together. And this could just simply be an informal thing or it can become a more formal thing where people actually try to set up uh, way, you know, ways of uh, growing co- crops mm-hmm. and doing things and helping each other. So there is a great deal of work at that at, uh, energy going at, at that kind of level. Uh, the difficulty with that is at a certain point it doesn't confront the fact that somebody has to go and confront the Federal Reserve. Yeah. You know, and, and this is the difficulty of the, of the thing these days. And actually, Marx talks about this when he's writing about the financial system. He says, you know, the financial system doesn't involve a conflict between labor and capital. It's really a conflict between different forms of capital. And this then kind of says to you, well, there's a real difficulty of revolution here. I mean, in the French, they, in the French Revolution, they could go storm the Bastille. Uh, you know, in the Russian Revolution, they had the Winter Palace. And then you think to yourself, okay, let's go storm the Federal Reserve. <laughs> and then you say to yourself, what would we do? 
when we got inside of the Federal Reserve. And actually there is something there which is very significant, which I call the state finance nexus, which is the real center piece of what capitalist class power is about. And, and, and actually it has more of a feudal structure than it does a real sort of capitalistic structure. It's, it's, a, it's a bit like the Vatican of, of, of capitalism. And we sort of saw it at work in the crisis. I always remember when the crisis came and people were looking at what to do with it. George Bush didn't know what to do. Congress didn't know what to do. Who came out and told us what they were going to do? It was Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, and it was Ben Bernanke, the Federal Reserve. Those two came out with a piece of paper and said, this is what we're going to do. That, that's the state finance nexus in action. And that, of course, laid the groundwork for what was being done. That was the basis also of the kind of agreement that occurred uh, shortly after. But to get people talking about banking. I mean, we've seen a great spike in interest in state banks and publicly owned banks. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, Banks should should be uh, public utilities. Yeah. They should not. Like like media. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) At least some of it. You know, and, and, and increasingly, one of the things that one of the campaigns has to be to take many of those things that have uh, gone almost entirely into the private sector and to bring them back into collective ownership. And this is what's good about the Labour Party right now. Well, we'll talk more about that because um, in the United States, it's almost impossible to imagine a national party taking on an agenda of nationalised of nationalizing ownership of, of key industries. But in the UK, that is exactly what's happening. And it, it's a fascinating story, and it makes me think a lot about the relationship between the state and the kind of ch- upswell that you're talking about. Yeah, the, I am, they're, they're not happy to talk about nationalization because it has... They have bad, a history of it. ...bad history of that, but... No, it's not as bad as many people make out, but... But it's about, things have to be brought back into the public domain. Right. And it's very interesting, when I was dismantling my library the other day, I came across this little pamphlet published in 1972 in New York by the Municipal Association, which kind of said, uh, housing in the public domain, the only solution. And I thought, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the only way you're going to get affordable housing. That's the only way it's going to happen. And we're told you can't talk about that anymore. So I think bringing things into the public domain and under the public control in the public domain is absolutely crucial. And there are ways of starting to think about doing that. And, you know, there are all these areas like, you know, education. I mean, why has that become a commodity in the way it's become such a commodity? Energy. Yeah. Look at Boulder, Colorado. Right. Municipalizing as a form of bringing it to the public. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and associated forms of of ownership and and reestablishing notions of the commons and things like that, which then become under under public uh, administration. Again, there's a difference between the state and and a lot of this. And I I think it's partly a political question because there is distrust of the state for very good reason, because the state right now is indeed acting like the executive committee of the ruling class. And and this is a kind of a problem about saying we want state ownership. No, we want public domain. And there's a lot of sentiment in favour of that. I mean, it was so interesting when 
when Cor- Corbyn came up with this thing... Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party in yeah, the UK. Came up with this thing and kind of said, OK, we're, we're going we're gonna to take back you know, water, transportation... Mail. Yeah. Railways. Rail, yeah. We're going to take all of that back into the public domain and everybody kind of, well, you know, all the financial times you know, you crazy. remember the story. I mean, just it's worth it. The press were out to get him. Yes, right. And they leaked the early version of the manifesto. This was a couple of years ago in the summer. And the manifesto had national ownership, public ownership of um, energy, uh, water, railroads, and mail. Yes. Leaked it out to the most conservative media. People loved it. Yeah. The public no. loved it. Yeah, right. No, it was huge. They got extra weeks of coverage in their nice short campaign yeah. season, and you saw the biggest growth of um, support for the Labour Party they'd seen in decades. Yeah, right. No, I think that, you know, it's that. I, I think of that pamphlet back in you know, 1972, you know. Uh, in housing in the public domain, the only solution. And, and everywhere you go in the world, there's affordable crowd housing, housing crisis. We've built cities that most people can afford to live in. And that's, that's it. So I kind of, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sentiment out there. And it has to be mobilized. And, and other, the other side of it is that we've, we've I think, forgotten the potential power of what you might call a kind of hidden class politics. Again, the China case is, is interesting. Over the last five years, there's been overt labor struggle in China. China's faced with the dilemma that they have a communist party that is no, you know, has all of this ideological baggage of a certain kind and, and still thinks Marx is great and all of this. At the same time, they've now got a working class movement that kind of says, hey, we want something that is radically different from what is actually going on. And wages have increased threefold in about the last three or four years. And you know, this is why China's heading is, a, is an interesting kind of thing. Now, is that sort of thing beginning to happen uh, around the world in the advanced capitalist countries? Imagine, I mean, if all of the people who are involved in logistics and motion and all this kind of thing, I mean, Yes, we're just flying out of Kennedy Airport to look out the window, and who's the people who's kind of doing all the work out there? I, you, in Dallas, who are the people out there? It's nearly all, you know, it's either women or people of color, or there's a huge working class emerging. Would you say that Me Too and Black Lives Matter is part of that emerging new class? It's, it's, I, think, I think there is a coming together. It is a had enoughism, I think. Yes. And, and, and uh, you know, Marx makes this distinction between a class in itself and a class for itself. And I think we're in a situation right now, which I encountered in China back in 2006, where I was talking to these migrant workers and talking to them about working class, things they didn't understand what I was talking about because they didn't understand they were part of the working class. They didn't, under- they didn't think in those terms. They're now thinking in those yeah. terms. And I... If everybody in this country suddenly started to say, I am part of a new working class, and this new working class is going to take control of what's going on in this country, and we're going to do it in a completely different way, because this system is not working for us, and it's not working for anybody that I happen to be close to or know. It seems to be only working for the Jeff Bezoses and the rest of it in the world. I mean, to me, this is actually a very exciting moment where you actually see... A new working class in, in formation. 
and it is not yet conscious, conscious of itself and the big issue is will it become a class for itself at a certain point to start to exert its political power and that means there has to be political thinking and political organization that can start to, 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 to tap into uh, that energy which, which happens to be there in these new sectors of the economy where there is a great deal of employment and a great, but a great deal of distress uh, and, and uh, a great deal of uh, alienation, both from the nature of the labor process, but also in terms of the wage levels. And, 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 and it's not only the labor process itself, but it's also daily life. Uh, one of the hallmarks of a good society is surely a society where there's a lot of free time. Yeah. How much free time do people have these days? Well, again, this is what capital is about. It's about speed up. It's about acceleration. I didn't get time to talk about that, but that also is one of the things that is so incredibly different about the Chinese case from the the U.S. case. The speed up, the acceleration, uh, and and, and the impact that has on on people and the disorientation that, that comes with that. Well, you were going down this really positive path, and I just need to take you back there before we close. The environment and motivations mm. and class formations mm. and speed up. Yes. Um, what about the motivation of what well, you talk about revolutionary humanism? What about revolutionary caring for one another and the planet? Oh, yeah. Can that course. turn over the chessboard? No. Look, I have, a, I, have a, I have a theory of, 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 of revolutionary transformation which kind of says, basically, you can never rely upon a single bullet to do it. Sure. Yeah, you need a change of mental conceptions. Without changing mental conceptions, you're not going to get anywhere. But mental conceptions are not going to get you anywhere unless you change social relations. Social relations are not going to change unless the mental conceptions change. They're not going to change unless our attitude and relation to nature is also changing. That's not going to happen unless there's changes in institutions. So I kind of say, well, we've got to start to work on all of these elements together. So when you kind of say, okay, will that thing turn it all over? The answer is no, that thing won't turn it all over. But without that thing, there will be no turnover. And so, yes, you're right that working on those things is critical and important. And I don't work on many aspects of this thing. I work on just certain things about them in the realm of ideas, thinking, and all the rest of it. And I know that's not going to change the world. It needs something else. But I know that without the kinds of things I do, the world is not going to change either. So that's the, that's the contradiction of the di- and the dilemma uh, that, I, that, that I find myself in, but I think is a general kind yeah. of dilemma. All right, we're agreed. We need David Harvey, and we need you all. Thank you, everybody. And thank the Lannan Foundation. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives presents similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives. <laughs>